0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode four of the So Code Podcast. It's where uh, we've collided the world of products and podcasts uh, in my uh, attempt to be humorous and call it the podcast. Um, <laughs> to, um, today's, um, today's show, I guess, I've got uh, Chris Massey and Roger Hart joining us today. Uh, this is a particularly special one for me. Chris and I have known each other for a while now. Uh, we've been bouncing this, you know, the, the idea of um, setting something like this up for a while. So it's, you know, g- great to um, <clears throat> Great to see this come together. Another reason why this is quite special, this is a bit of a fitting metaphor for my day-to-day job of bringing product people together. So uh, it's nice to have uh, uh, the, the pair of you on today. So um, before we get into what we're uh, going to be talking about today, I just wanted to introduce my guests. Um, so we've got Chris Massey. Uh, Chris is a senior product manager at Ghost City, um, where he's bringing clarity and uh, systems thinking to a complex product ecosystem. Uh, prior to this, Chris has, um, uh, he helped build the global, um, what's it called? Sorry, yeah, the, the global Mind the Product community, um, helping product managers across the world um, level up their craft. Um, so, Chris, you're no stranger to um, public speaking, I take it. No,
1: I've done, I mean, I don't do that, I haven't done it very often on video, but I, I, I do uh, enjoy um, getting up in front of people and kind of sharing stories and kind of the, like, telling the stories is a good way to force myself to think through the lessons that I learned along the way actually and it's a really good conversation to have there and to hear other people then come back to me and say share their stories about similar things and it's a great way to learn I've always found so just get out and kind of put yourself out there if you can
0: that's it yeah I've seen um you know some of Chris's material is available through his LinkedIn uh, I'll be including all the links to uh, both Roger and Chris's profile so um uh, please feel free to reach out uh, to anyone who has any further questions prior to this uh, podcast. um and um and also we have Roger Roger Hart. So um uh, Roger's a senior product manager at Microsoft, um trying to help make the internet of things more more secure right now. Um, so he's focused on product strategy and making sure development teams understand customer needs. Um, I don't know how much you can share with us today, Roger, but um, <laughs> would you like to add to that around what you're working on? Yeah, sure. No, um,
2: I, I can talk a little bit about it, being a bit coy because I'm mostly working on the next version of the product, which which isn't isn't released yet. But yeah, we um, we make something called Azure Sphere, which is a set a sort of chip to cloud full stack offering to help you secure IoT products and services. So um, you've got a sort of Customized secure operating system, a bunch of cloud services that handle update, and just all of the juicy security goodness that um, that helps, yeah, helps keep your devices healthy and functional and stop someone putting your toaster on a botnet.
0: <laughs> well, you'll be pleased to know there isn't a Q and A session at the end of this, so there won't be any inquisitive questions coming your way about <laughs> right, what's happening next. Uh, <laughs> but I might ask you after the call, actually, so we'll see. I'm not promising anything. <laughs>
2: I normally think I'm joking when I said that. And then I read an article the other day, someone is doing an IoT toaster. I just, <laughs> if there's a thing, someone will put internet in it.
0: <laughs> I, I came across, um, well, when I first got into product recruitment, one of the first articles or first podcasts I watched um, included an IoT salt shaker. I don't know if either of you have, uh, oh, no. yeah. Um I will include the link to that just because it's it was really funny, or even a five-minute oh. clip of that particular thought. This is like That's the juicer
1: all over again, isn't yep. it? Like Wi-Fi <laughs> enabled juicer, like. You buy bespoke salt sachets to go into your your iot <laughs> salt shaker or, or canisters of salt that's what it will be
2: yeah I, I love this about working in this space though right because consumer iot is is like just pinging off the walls it's full of solutions looking for problems and as product people you look at it and you think i don't know but maybe but then like enterprise iot it's not I mean, we still call it IoT, but it's instrumentation and actuation, and efficiency, and kind of making things a bit greener. And it's just—it's it, automation. It's—it's it's just all of that standard stuff that happens to have had maybe some of the processing pushed towards the edge, or the telemetry added, or a bit more cloud connection. It's, I—it's it's, this the wonderful other side of a slightly deranged coin. <laughs>
0: Before before we jump into today's topic, um, I just wanted to ask you both, actually, uh, one of the topics that I've been speaking to everyone about and I always find quite fascinating is your journey into product. How did you become a product manager? So I don't know who wants to go first, but...
1: Roger relax. should go first because he made the jump first. So, I mean, did I? <laughs> Didn't we, I, watched, we both... I? I watched it happen. I watched it happen and I was there for the therapy afterwards.
2: Yeah, I mean, we sort of both ended up Chris and I work together at a company called Redgate. Uh, which makes among other things database software and we worked on one of the other things we worked on some tools for .NET developers and at the time we were both working in um product marketing um i'd come into product marketing from technical communications from and from that from actually working in a bookshop for a couple of years did a my my, my, my degrees in english literature um but i've always been a massive nerd so i ended up being a technical writer for a few years and bootstrapped my way into marketing through content strategy and various things and so I was, I was working as a product marketer on um, .NET Reflector at uh, Regate and we were quite an autonomous business unit, and we had quite a few problems. One of them was not really understanding our value to our customers. We didn't have a clear handle on, and I say customers is a slightly dicey one for people that know the history of that product, um, but... Um, there was just so much discovery work to do and so much customer understanding which then bled into product direction so very much a sort of on the job learning of what it took to lead a product like the, the remit was marketing but the work we ended up doing i would say both of us actually chris was, was product management
1: both of us were feeding in from different directions so like between us we more or less made a functional product manager um but yeah, I think you were coming at it from the very much the kind of the marketing strategy perspective, and I was coming in from the community relationship perspective. And uh, indeed, after that, I went straight into developer relations, uh, still within Redgate. And then that kind of exposed me to an awful lot of more product organizations. Um and from there, the kind of the the kind of journey was uh, I met some folk. Again, I did a talk at a conference, at a lightning talk, and there I met one of the co-founders of Mind the Product who said, "You think like a product manager? Do you want to come to this conference?" Sure. Eventually, they they actually hired me. Eventually, a year after that, to kind of bring the marketing and community work that I'd done for Redgate with the product thinking into Mind the Product and there like there were four of us to start with and so we i kind of tran- transitioned into product within that and for me that was semi-intentional uh, because i forget if i want to learn this craft the best way is to put myself smack bang in the middle of that network and absorb from as much around me as possible see all these different perspectives so going into that in that community that was explicitly trying to level up product managers it's like they can level up me with it. Um, and so that was a very intentional journey on my part. Um, and yeah, that was, that was it, basically. I broke into it and built a phenomenal network of people who are sort of passionate about the craft and about teaching others and about learning. And again, that's sort of a great environment to be in. And it's a huge privilege for me. I recognize that, absolutely. But it genuinely started from saying sure, why not, and doing a lightning talk. That's literally where it started. So, indeed, if anyone else is watching this and and a bit nervous about it, like, the lo-fi lightning talk will yield some startling results. (laughs) And I...
2: Do I do I remember rightly, Chris, that you um, yeah, like your your like sort of pre tech sector background was was also humanities, right? Like you you're not a, you weren't a an engineer.
1: No, no, I'm a, no, no, actually not. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a i was a philosopher at university and massive nerd. I used to build websites for artists. I basically you know read the uh, Learn HTML in 24 Hours book. Yeah. So we all remember those and uh, like Dreamweaver and Fireworks. That was my yeah. my first toys uh, in there. And I used to yeah build build some websites with tables. I'm so sorry. Um, it was the
2: 90s. We all did it. It,
1: it was we all tried. Like it. those, we all with tables. Exactly.
2: We all like it's like those horribly cut jeans that the young people are wearing again now.
1: <laughs> so yes, um, yeah, indeed. I was uh, humanities massive nerd. Uh, worked in a restaurant for a while in the kitchen. Went to uni. Came back. Uh, sure. Redgate looks like a great place to work. The culture of Redgate brought me in, and so me yeah, I'm in technology. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Go. Great, great bit of advice there. And uh, it just goes to show, I mean, I, I speak to product managers daily, uh, day in, day out. Um, and everyone comes from a very different background. You know, you've got the engineers that have moved into it. You've got marketing, various other elements. So it's, it's one of those roles um, that I think no matter what walk of life you come from, you can bring value to. Um, and I think companies more and more so recognize that in terms of Where can this individual bring value to our organization and what we're trying to do? Um, I
1: think the irony here is that, again, it's like, well, what problem are you solving as a product manager? Mm. I think like you don't have to be able to code. You don't have to be able to design per se. Right. It's about how you think. It's about how you synthesize information. For me, I look at my degree, I think, well, philosophy actually led me this way really well, because as a philosopher, what I would do when I was studying was take a complex idea break it apart to figure out how it worked and then put it back together again and go and debate it like that's just product management in a different context (laughs) i'm imagining that literary analysis is not dissimilar so like every back like when you look at it it's it's about a way of thinking more than anything and i think different backgrounds bring really valuable texture and nuance to that so i think it's It's problematic because when you with breaking into anything, so much of that is about you've got to have some experience before people take you seriously about getting into it. And that's a really problematic journey to make Mm. because you can't just like do a course. Well, you can do a course and there's great courses out there and they teach you the fundamentals that you can then use. But in the one sense, it's tricky to do. On the other hand, it's open to everyone, which is, I think, a really interesting thing if they think in the right way.
2: So many of the best product managers I've worked with are bootstrapped into the role. Like the yeah. the team I the team I ran at my my last organization Savanta had a had a great time there. Um, one of the product managers there it, the company did technology for market research and also did market research, and so you know it's related, right? Market research is is deeply related to product management. But yeah, one of the the team there had bootstrapped um, his way in as like sort of graduate researcher and got more interested in the technology and brought sort of, brought all of that to bear and just, yeah, had exactly the right way of thinking, was already sort of thinking like a product manager. And we
0: sort of, yeah, we we sort of stole him for our team basically, <laughs> D- I, doing great. I think, yeah, I, I think I know exactly who you're talking about. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's, uh, funnily enough, um, <clears throat> we were just discussing your, your, your uh, previous uh, organization and that's what kind of really sparked this, um, this question um, for, from my end around the different backgrounds people could come from uh, into that. So, um, no, thank you both for, for, for sharing that. So, um, let's jump into today's topic, I guess. Finally, we get there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, the idea um, Chris and Roger brought together was around the importance of world building and storytelling in products. Um, so, I'm going to hand over the two of you. To kind of go through what <clears throat> what you found throughout your careers on this um what, what your tips maybe any any suggestions you can provide or what works for you So open up as a bit of a discussion really but i guess firstly just as a top layer before you go into it i mean what is world building and what's storytelling what's you know what, what's the difference
1: so probably easy to start with storytelling i think like people understand the idea of storytelling and there's definitely a kind of trope that goes around about you know the importance of being a good storytelling with data being a good storyteller is essential to being a product leader or being a product manager and you know I, I broadly agree with that and stories are this kind of idea there, there are you know literal structures for stories and again Roger you, you could probably actually speak that way better than I can but we've got this idea of you know the hero's journey we've got this idea of there being actors and outcomes and like telling a story stories have meaning stories connect with people in a way that abstract data or facts don't and I think When you're trying to build alignment as a product manager, like it's really important you can tell that story to to people to get emotionally invested and conceptually invested in what you're doing. And that's great. I think the thing for me, the distinction comes down to storytelling, you're focused on a single narrative, like just that one thread through the world and the world building part, which is easy to forget about, but I think is increasingly becoming important as you know, the world becomes more connected to get our internet toasters, is that The world building is the narrative that happens around your story. And that's really important because your story has an impact beyond the end, like, you know, and they live happily ever after, like the end. Well, no, because those people, stuff kept going on. And for me, where it comes down to this idea of where world building becomes important is that you make a product, you create something, you drop it into the world. And there's a story around that, about what it does. And the thing is because of the way the world is, like that has ripple effects that, that move out from the thing that you built. And good world building is the process of starting to understand, well, what happens if this exists? What happens if this happens? What are the second order consequences of that? Um, and how does that propagate yeah. out? And if you can't see that, you're only getting half the picture of what your product might be. And you're potentially missing out on strategic advantages that you might have or knock on consequences that you might have i think that for me when it comes to world building and storytelling is like that the single narrative and everything that wraps around that narrative and that's kind of why i think it matters in product Um, i got to this topic because i got annoyed at some fiction where the world building was problematic and I kind of that's what led me to like why am I so angry about this oh because I think in a different way but that for me is the distinction and Roger like we've gone back and forth about this but like you got some interesting nuance on that as well yeah
2: I, I think you're quite focused on sort of second order and downstream which mercenarily I think is fascinating because it kind of takes you to your v2 right product makes something else true in the world and then it changes the world and then it evolves the market needs and thinking about and anticipating that is a way of. Potentially getting an advantage, but also avoiding sort of innovators, dilemmas. sort of like thinking about what next, thinking about what comes after, thinking about how you change the world. It's fun as well. Right. But upstream world building is also a part of storytelling. It's, it's what makes things feel real. And something that I've really learned over the last couple of years, because I my go to, like, if you ask me to kind of articulate something will be to talk or to write you a couple of paragraphs. And often that totally fails to land, right? So I've had to sort of, you know, (laughs) often our principles are something we do, not who we are. And I've had to teach myself to behave differently. I had the opportunity to work with lots of really good designers, uh, like user experience designers. And one thing I found is that when you build a bit more world around your kind of narrative story, when you have like some high fidelity mockups, and we could call them North Stars, but actually you can get a bit more detailed than that. When 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 you have something that's just a bit more rarefied, it's much more compelling as a way of telling a story, and it makes people start to ask their own second order questions. So can I click that? What happens if I do that? Well, OK, that's great. But can it do, you know, it, it, you kind of you start to explore the yes and stuff a little bit more if your world is a bit more built. So I, I think it's good for intellectual hygiene, and intellectual discipline. I also think it's good for making your storytelling more powerful.
1: Yeah, and I, I can also just flag that as the two arts kids, the humanities kids on the call, like I understood what you what you said, what you meant when you said reified to make real, just to flag yeah. that.
2: i sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, from the Latin raise things literally to make to make a thing out of. Um, but I think user personas are a great
1: example of that. Right. Like to build a meaningful persona, like you don't just kind of say like this is, you know, you, you are thinking about how does this person exist outside of our product so that we can build something that is meaningful to them? Um, I think f- there's another part of this as which, well, which is that good world building is more believable. And for me, mm-hmm. when you start telling, when you have a fleshed out world around your product and you start coming up with hypotheses about what might be true for it or how might we, and you start doing that kind of work, if you understand the world and you can paint the picture of that one you understand it better so your hypotheses are more higher fidelity or more likely to be you can have more confidence in those but also with the world building if you've projected that out to the rest of your team you can sell the hypothesis better you can get more in conversation around that and some of that is about being more convincing but some of it's also about having more reasonable debate so you know if someone disagrees with hypothesis and we both share the same world building picture. Okay, like we can have a meaningful discussion about that. And I think that comes to like one of my favorite stories about this, which I'm going to ask you to tell now, which <laughs> is about world building as prototyping, which I think is a magnificent example of that upstream thing that you're yeah. talking about.
2: I mean, you want me to talk about SQL source control, I guess. I
1: actually do you want to talk about SQL source Okay, control.
2: cool. So a little bit of background. SQL source control is like a flagship product for Redgate software. Genuinely great. I'm assuming they still make it. I haven't checked in a while. I'd be amazed if they still don't because it was like the linchpin of this whole amazing thing that they did. Um, it's a tool that lets you source control your database scripts, your database changes. A problem that is historically was really hard for a variety of sort of fairly existential reasons to do with... SQL being declarative and table migrations being hard. Anyway, um, we had a a, wonder, a brilliant product manager I worked with who had this vision basically that we should make a source control product, and he kind of struggled to get traction on that idea in the organization for a while. Um, and it was sort of it, it was something that because the problems were so endemic, the, the customers didn't really know they needed it. It wasn't something they were beating down the door for. But when you started to articulate it, they were like, "Oh, oh, that would be brilliant." And it was technologically hard. So there's a kind of two-phase world-building effort involved in in how this got to market, one of which I was directly involved in myself, one of which I sort of got to see from the sidelines, both of which were fascinating. So we did a sort of, he and I, I was a technical writer at the time uh, moving into marketing, we prototyped this product. And when I say prototype this product, what I mean is we wrote a white paper about how you could just about fudge it, using some like open source bits and the command lines of a couple of our existing products. And so we told a story, we sort of laid out the case, we did all of the fluff and the sort of selling the idea, selling the problem. And then so basically just published the batch scripts, like here is here is how what you would do and the automation jobs you would run to chain together these operations that will let you just about do this thing and we put that out there we did some marketing of it we got a load of feedback on it and it started to generate a lot of interest it sort of validated the concept but we also saw people actually using it and a couple of years later when we take the product to market one of the things we were competing with in a sort of like um uh in, in that sort of plain Christensen way uh, one of the things it turned out we were competing with was the right the white paper we'd written two years ago um that was that was fun but the um so we we told a story which was you can source control your databases using this stuff. But then we we kind of built it out a bit more to make it real to make it plausible for people. And then, but sort of to do that, and this was the master stroke I think of the guy that that was that was that was working on it. Um, in order to make that work, there needed to be a piece of functionality that was added to the product. Like the 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 thing, it would need to be able to write out the, date, the differential change script to a bunch of folders of of, of scripts modeling your database objects, and. Um, that feature was sort of was an independently useful thing a small one but an independently useful thing that we managed to shoehorn into the product and the sort of second order thinking genius there was once you'd created these dynamic scripts folders you had the capability the next obvious stage the next thing you could then do was start to build this source control automation so the sort of the the, the two ends of the world building the sort of the upstream and then the kind of downstream well okay this is now true in the world so what could be true next that was the little. Conceptual hop that sort of helped take the market on the journey, and then the database source control thing helped sort of take the market on the journey to database lifecycle management and to more advanced database DevOps and to you know Redgate's exciting uh, exciting revenue journey. And um, I you know I personally think that a lot of it has its genesis in a couple of really good ideas that this one very talented product manager I had the like luxury of working with had. Um, yeah it was it was partially a world building building exercise we we wrote a fairly detailed white paper that kind of made this set of concepts real and then we used that to iterate on what could become true in the world next
1: i think that's i love that idea of world building as prototype like can you take someone on a journey where they like they get excited. They start engaging with it. One of the best things I've ever heard, along the similar lines, is uh, Jan Abasto talks about your roadmap being a prototype of your product. Like if you can tell the narrative to, that, and that mm. storytelling, right? Then you kind of like you've gone from the world building as prototype to roadmap as prototype to wireframes. Like you've got these levels yeah. that you can go before you touch code at all. And I just I love that. I, did, I mean, I yeah. worked there and I didn't know this story, and that's my favorite thing about this. Um, I think
0: we're I doing that do, at the moment a
2: bit
1: interesting yeah
2: yeah well because a lot of the the product is a lot of the interaction with it is command line based so you um i've got one here but i can't show you but you 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 get this like (laughs) circuit you get this board like you get an ev evaluation kit a, a sort of early version of a chip that you kind of plug things into and you put the version of the operating system on it and you play with it and a lot of your interaction. So the actual product is like a bunch of hardware of which not very many exist at the moment and um, some like command line utilities and it's it's not very visual, it's not very immediate. So in order to get feedback and in order to explain it to people, in order to effectively use test it at this high level of altitude we're at where we can't ship someone a dev board, not, not just for a, like a research call and we can't necessarily get them all set up and using the thing are sort of the story we're telling is yes we tell them what it does and there are some bullet points but we're actually using architecture diagrams basically like fairly simplified architecture diagrams and sort of slide based sort of user experiences maybe little snippets of what the command line interactions might be and having to kind of assemble those in such a way that people can give meaningful feedback and it's it's really hard you know because the whole thing is quite abstract but um you've got to sort of do what you can to make it real
1: yeah i think the, the 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 risk with something like this is that you could very easily be accused. I mean, certainly, I, I could imagine like, is this just is this semantic navel gazing, right? Are we just like saying world building but we just mean market research, right? And
2: yeah, maybe we are, but
1: but I think there's a difference, right? I think the difference is about the interconnectedness of the, the bits of information we're finding, right? Because like I can go and find some stats. I can do some competitor analysis, and I can give you information and I think the distinction is about tying that together into a coherent world where if you change something here it has a consequence here whether that's upstream or downstream yep. to your point yep. earlier like, and i think that's the distinction and i've not seen any frameworks about this or anything i think it's thus far it's you know it's it's very much a it's about a way of thinking it through i think i was wondering about like our experiences through this and like how storytelling in a startup might be different from storytelling in a business in, a, in an enterprise having so my last role was at a kind of very kind of large sizable, not Microsoft size, but a sizable you know, a little, a little six thousand person organization. And there's there is <laughs> some, there's no room in there for storytelling that doesn't have data underneath it. Yeah. That was really interesting, is that in this in a the smaller team where everyone is kind of impassioned and kind of believes the stories already, you can go a long way with just the narrative. And I think there's a really useful discipline actually. Mm. That actually could be that is useful all the way down the chain about if you want to tell a good story about something uh, with a bigger business and really should be happening. I and mean, you, you have some data to back that up. Like you've gone and done the market research and you feed that into the realism of your of your world. And again, this comes back to what brought me to this is like, you know, it's very easy to watch a science fiction movie and get really not That wouldn't happen in real life. But you're like, yeah, but this sci-fi, no one cares. But when it comes to product, no, no, it has to be real life. You actually do have to have some believability so you can reify something. And I think that's really important to not lose sight
2: of. Will you, I With, think with your was,
1: example, you had the batch scripts. Like, yeah, it was tangible. Yeah.
2: There's got to be a thing, because that lets you draw the causal connections. That lets you do more than just sort of talk imaginary. Um, yeah. like William Gibson, I think, I might be about to misattribute this quote, has this thing about science fiction being selectively extruding the present. Ah. And um, and I, I sort of think that's a lot of what we do in product, unless we're doing like pure innovation-led push, like we we iterate something out, or we we sort of pull a string off the edge of our product and have and see what it might look like. You know, um, that sounded gross. So, but but we and we
1: string do... model of product <laughs> innovation.
2: Yeah, let's go with that. Why not? Um, and when you've already got a product, then it's a little easier to start telling that story because maybe your next innovation is one of those second order things. Someone's starting to be able to do X, so maybe they do a bit more X or they do Y with it, or we, or you do some application innovation where you say, hey, we've got this product over here, but you could also use it for for this. But um, yeah, sometimes you are just having to to sort of think through and ask, well, well, then what if in in a bit more of a vacuum? And yeah, you do need to be able to tell those stories.
1: I think the there are, as you're saying that I'm thinking like actually there are some tools that help with this like anything around yeah you know, systems thinking is a good example like mm-hmm. the whole point of if you depending on what level of abstraction you work along like you can start to see the different actors in a system and actually see how they interact service blueprints another good example yep, where yep, yep. they can tell a single narrative but you can actually explode them out to
2: tell bigger stories value and chain think, modeling of any kind really
1: exactly. Um, I'm thinking about like when I was at Mind the Product and we were in this position where we didn't like we were building the product from the ground up, like we were trying to build this integrated community that involved content, uh, meetups, uh, uh, the conference elements, like all of that stuff was trying to come together, online training, we were trying to tie that all together, because all those things existed independently of each other, but we had never brought them together into a single platform before, and we kind of had a vision for what that might look like. And So, yeah, we told we spoke the vision there. But actually again, like these things all existed out in the world already. So a huge part of what we we're trying to do was to listen to those little segments of story and try to understand, are these part of the same story? How do we tie them together into a coherent journey for a given customer who moves between these different narratives? Um and that was a real challenge because we were coming from we had enough, we didn't have an uh, we didn't we were going from scratch, and that was actually kind of interesting. And like, how do we take these different stories and see, oh no, these are actual, how do we make them part of one story in a way that feels believable to the actual customer? Um, and that was, like. it took us a while to get to that point, but once we had a narrative that, oh yeah, okay, and then I'll do this, and then like, oh yeah, and people getting excited about that narrative, okay, now we're closing in on a coherent proposition for the product. And we didn't, like we we were building stuff before then, but we were optimizing those those individuals. Like we mm. didn't start tying things together until we were confident that we had that excitement of how it would bind together.
2: Have you seen that? Um, you you probably have. It's fairly iconic. The Disney product estate diagram. No. It's from I wanna say it's from the sixties, but I'm probably getting that wrong. I will look it up after this. But it, it's like a sort of almost hand drawn or draftsman drawn like value chain map of the Disney product estate, we might say now. I don't no, know what they called it in nineteen, whenever it was. But um so you've got the the characters linking through to the publications, linking through to the parks, linking through to effectively a sort of an interrelated mapping of how the IP gets you to the product value. That- um and so they started thinking incredibly holistically about what sat downstream of mickey mouse right like you know what what you put mickey mouse in the world what follows from there um, <laughs> it's uh, sweet sweet I, capitalism basically I, sorry I, I was about to go off on one about the nolan batman films but maybe we'll maybe we'll get to that later um That's the next episode but yeah, it's 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 a really interesting way of kind of modeling what you've got, how it interlinks, and what it then implies about what you can have next. Yeah. Um, kind of visualizing your entire estate and drawing those connections.
1: And visualizing is really important. I think whenever I go somewhere, what I find, I'm finding that in my role where, so, here at Go City, is that there's a huge amount. This is a scale-up, we're about 170 people, and we're kind of like really aggressively starting to grow. And um there's so much we saw this at Redgate I think to a different degree but we had someone who if I re- remember we had someone whose job literally tried to tackle this which was so much communication and information is tribal and actually getting information out of people's heads into a format that everyone can see and understand mm-hmm. is it's it's a hard problem yeah. right it's it's not solved but there was literally someone at Redgate whose job it became to try and yeah. solve communications which was a hell of a task. Personally, I'm a very visual thinker. One of the things I've found incredibly powerful is starting to have a conversation with people and starting to, like, say, let's get some post-it notes or a mirror board or yep. whatever, and say, okay, yep. let's start to map out this journey. Okay, and so how does this connect to their journey over there? And you start to draw those connections, and the visual mapping is really interesting because it's about having world building only works if everyone can understand the world yeah like if, if i come and talk to you know someone on the finance team who's like really into some really niche stuff i don't understand their world so i can't tell a story i can't understand their story and like good world building has to be at a level that everyone can understand the story and i think that's another key thing about the distinction between world building and storytelling is that world building has to cross yeah. uh, you know has, has to be has to kind of cross uh, the whole organization in a way that storytelling doesn't necessarily has to do that same level. Mm. Um, the thing that actually, just thinking about what, as you were talking, something that occurred to me was this idea of if you look at some of the books and the, the novels that are like have huge world building, they all have a map at the front, right? <laughs> you've, got your, you've got your Middle Earth. You've got whatever, the, at Westeros, like these huge complex worlds. They've all got a map because that gives you a sense that there's stuff happening in different places mm. that doesn't relate to this bit of the story right now. But there's something happening over there right now that you just don't know about yet. And I know that's not a meaningful, that's a terrible metaphor. But it's well, no, but I was when a story about... gets complicated yeah. enough, you need that. You can't just say, you know, see, spot, run. Like, that's a very simple story. It's one narrative. Like, I don't care what the other... Dogs are doing right now. I just want to see Spot chasing that ball. Um, simplicity of story. When you scale that up, you need bigger
0: tools to deal with it. Game of Thrones would sure. have been very different without that opening intro. Then, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. so. It's, um, <laughs> did you? This is
2: like a tiny technique thing, riffing on what you just said, Chris. But like, I don't know. Maybe this will be useful to other people. Maybe it. Maybe it won't. But did you ever go to one of Elizabeth's um, data amnesties?
1: <laughs> yes i did for, for the record elizabeth was our uh our, our manager uh, she was a product leader fantastic phenomenal fantastic product leader um, yeah, yeah she, she's on elizabeth Ayer, look her up follow her she works in the sometimes US, yeah she's phenomenal yeah. she's she's working in kind of u.s the u.s equivalent of gds at the moment and she's an absolute powerhouse
2: she, had, she has this wonderful maxim um, which is don't ask for permi- permission or forgiveness radiate intent um, Like let people know what you're going to do with enough time to get in, the, in your way if they really need to but then carry on with it but yeah she used to run these things she, I think I think they were called data amnesties it, it sort of acknowledged the siloing of, of knowledge but also the need to bring people on the same page so it was like turn up in a conference room and no judgment I know you've been doing customer research I, I know <laughs> I know what you've got under the table I know you, you've got like a Gartner rapport or you've been doing those you Calls, with those go like turn up, confess to your data, and then just a bunch of post it notes on the wall to kind of understand what we'd got and which SharePoint folder or Google Drive or wherever it was. And it, it was fun and it was a bit daft, but it also helped people understand kind of the knowledge and the connections and the things that we knew and the things that we didn't know. And especially in, in an organization that's growing fast where you might be having scaling challenges, I would say, I would say, run a date, do a data amnesty. Yeah
0: just on that actually just to touch on a point chris that you brought up earlier around you know startups and scale up and how you know it's going to be different uh, in that environment compared to an enterprise environment i mean question for both of you, you you've worked in a variety of different companies as product managers <clears throat> what have you what's the main difference that you guys have encountered regarding this in the organizations you've worked with Is is there any trends that you think see more of it somewhere less of it somewhere else you know what i'm gonna be i'm gonna be controversial and say
2: it's super cultural so Mm -hmm. like i've worked in startup scale up and like what by any definition you have to call a megacorp and you know that glib thing about london being a lot of little villages and it sounds sickening the first time someone says it to you and then you realize it's actually true um like i i worked in a three-ish hundred person non-profit that i won't name uh, and you know, 300 is—it was about the size of, of of Redgate, which was a sort of scale up. Redgate was super nimble, had an amazing culture, was super flexible. This 300-ish person nonprofit behaved like the bogeyman version that you might imagine microsoft to be like it had that incredibly dodgy enterprise culture with lots of obstructive process and it was weird because the people were all fantastic and super smart like you want to see something be less than the sum of its parts go and work at redacted um but anyway (laughs) It's 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 super cultural. Like you can you can turn a a, a three hundred person organization into something that feels like a lumbering beer moth. The experience I'm having on the Azure team, Sphere team at Microsoft, is way more like a startup. And we're not that small of an organization, and we're embedded in quite a large one. Like it's it, it's super cultural. It's super subjective. I think product maturity counts for a lot. Mind like a, I think a a more mature product is maybe likely to have. Yeah, I think I believe that. I think I think I believe that product maturity is more a factor than organization scale.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And when we say maturity, I'm going to talk about product, like product, product, product process maturity, not the like a legacy product uh, a very I, I meant product. product
2: life cycle. But
1: yeah, well, see, interesting yeah. because like I've worked on something which was no. I, I guess I see that right. Because of, but I've seen both sides of that, where you have a product that is. You know, it, it needs to stop, right? It, it is no longer doing what it needs to do and it needs to be brought in and sunset. And there's a lot of cruft that's built up around it and a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of people have vested interest. And like that, that's a nightmare to untangle. And that, that's one version of the maturity. Equally, I've seen products that are mature in the sense that the team is a, it's a mature product team. They know what they're doing, they're highly efficient. And actually, in that environment, you get it can be a long lived product that still has good processes around it. So I think- Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so I, I kind of agree with you, but I, I think like if it's the, the, it comes back to the culture, right? Like the culture, if the culture of the team is mature, in the sense that we are mature adults building a product, then we had one experience. If we've just had a thing for a long time, but we're still not mature about it, you're gonna have a different problem. I think the main difference, depending on the scale of organization, is the number of different stories you have to tell to build your world. Mm. But, that, but that, that, I think that's it. Because like if you're in a startup, you only have a handful of people who you've got to convince. Like you know who those are. You pro- probably know, again, the idea of a world building. has you, to, tell, to do world building, you have to make it something that all the different people who are part of that world can understand. When it's a startup, you've got a handful of people. Fairly easy to wrap your head around broadly speaking, what has to go into that might vary depending on the culture of who the founders are, do they need data, what do they need, but you have a a more bounded problem there. As organizations scale, and again, a lot of this depends, it's not a hard and fast rule, the odds are you're going to have to tell more story, more slight variations of the story, translate it more often to get Everyone to understand the the build the building that you're trying to do, and that's I think the distinction. It could be a high-functioning product team, and actually you've got people supporting you in there, and they're coming to meet you halfway. Great. It could also be a lumbering monster where it's very old-school enterprise on mainframes, and I hope you like Lotus Notes. You know what I mean? Like it's that that world where everyone is just. Doing their thing and you you don't everyone's kind of independent I, yeah, there's there's like where everyone's just siloed and not exactly uh, antagonistic, but also not necessarily collaborative. Like that's not a function of the size of the organization. Mm-hmm. That's a function of culture.
2: Yeah. I think for
1: the, sure. f- the, the size of the organization does have a complexity element just because of the number of different stories you have to tell. Mm-hmm.
2: I think there's um, there's design patterns, oh, maybe not design patterns. I I'm overly fond of the metaphor of carcinization, um, which is a form of um, convergent evolution whereby basically everything oh, over yes. time turns into crabs. There, there are there are patterns, you know. And I think left untended, an organisation as it gets larger will drift towards being what we think of as an enterprise um those silos will form, the org chart problems will occur. I think Humans it's actually tribal. Yeah. It's active work to maintain healthy, mature product cultures as your organization scale. It really is. You've got to pay attention to your organizational design. You've got to pay attention to the alignment of your incentives. Um so yeah, you know, it's it's not that the idea of org size affecting things is is non-existent because by default your org size or org type will influence your culture, but that can absolutely be manipulated and shaped.
1: I think one thing I'd say about this, and this again coming coming back to this idea, of like is world building just uh, ivory tower version of market research, or is it something more than that? I think the the way I would pitch this to someone who was like still sceptical is I'd say it think of it as holistic a holistic discovery about your about your market, right? Every time because the thing is we're not telling a fantasy story. We're telling a story about the real world either yep. as it is and as it could be. Mm-hmm. So every every interaction with the world you learn something new that should feed into your understanding of that. You should be, you know, pushing back the fog of war, clarifying that map. Every interaction you have, the data amnesties feed into that. Like, okay, come on, own up. Like, who's got insights on this thing? Amazing, we can use that to sketch out this whole area that we just didn't understand collectively. And to Roger's point about the kind of natural evolution of organizations, people tend like the the, the finance team will tend to know a bunch about you know, the, the legals around finance and their audit requirements that you don't know about, but it turns out you need to know about that because you're working on an e-commerce system. So now mm. you've got to go and pull that information out of them. And that's natural. And let's not pretend that's never going to happen. Like they have their storytelling and their world building, you have yours. But the goal is to be intent in product. I think so much of what we do is this intentional act of let's get a shared understanding. Like alignment is the is the buzzword yeah. here, right? Mm-hmm. Like let's go and find out, okay, let's let's have a shared narrative a shared story about what we are building why we are building it what happens over here and how it happens here you will never have a single world that you operate in you're going to have overlapping versions and hopefully they kind of bleed into each other reasonably well i guess if i was going to pick a metaphor it's the mcu the marvel cinematic universe like you know you might love the iron man stuff you dig that you might love the doctor strange stuff but you're like this is a man in a technological wonder of a suit that's a wizard. I don't quite understand how these are part of the same world, but somehow they are. Like, and they actually—oh wait, there's a crossover episode. Like, you know, these worlds don't have to always be smashed together, but they—they they do interact, and that's the thing that we have to be mindful
2: of. If you're making a, um, a comic book movie, a superhero movie in particular, you've got two things you could do. No, oh, like way more than two, obviously. But I'm being willfully simplistic. Um, you could. Um, You could put Thor on the screen, which is, broadly speaking, what the first Thor movie does, and arguably the first Iron Man movie, but less so. Or you could ask yourselves, what are the preconditions for the emergence of Iron Man? And you could, and you could, if we're going to have some grand theory of good versus bad MCU movies, I think that might be it. (laughs) But, um, yeah, like... (laughs) A well built world will ask yourself, what are the preconditions for these things happening that I want to happen? And then once it's happened, what happens next? And what are the preconditions for my product, which is to say my market understanding, my jobs to be done, my customer needs? What happens when they begin to be met? Therefore, what can happen next? What does it unlock? Um, what, are you, what are your unlock opportunities? What's your natural V1? Um, there's the, the, this concept of the, the adjacent possible. It's an idea from sort of um, from biology, but it often gets, it, there's a, a, a Tim Harford's podcast talks about this in the context of Sinclair nearly inventing electric cars, whereas them being sort of semi-mainstream or becoming massively mainstream now. The idea was the same, which was to bootstrap via small things, via making them possible into yada, yada, yada. Sinclair's plan was not massively dissimilar to Tesla's plan as stated okay that's a total lie but you know you can see it if you squint um what he lacked, the, the thesis in, in the, on, on the podcast is, was access to the adjacent possible ad, ad, access to the proximate bits of technology that could enable it. And so he was taking a bunch of wild and confused leaps into the impossible based, based on a vision. What, what, uh, what, what, a, what a better built out world sort of asks you is what are the next possible things? How does everything chain link and build on each other to get you to a series of exciting outcomes?
1: And if anyone's interested in that, look up Wardley Maps. They're
2: super Oh, yeah. An
1: incredible tool for mapping your landscape. And again, they, they, they flatten down the world to something that where you see that progression of things through time. and You see what has to be true before we can do that. Or this is now true what does that unlock what can we build on top of that and in terms of like building up that coherent thing where mm. things interact outside of their individual narratives wardley maps are a phenomenal tool to look
2: at. oh up. super super look up wardley mapping um also follow the guy on on twitter I, um...
0: yeah. so, and his blog is interesting very yeah. interesting oh well, we'll include um <clears throat> links to all the relevant uh, materials yeah. when i post this but um yeah, just around that, what is possible? I think uh, Marvel certainly have absolutely rinsed to that over the last few years. Um, but it goes to show, I mean, this you know the same principles can be apl- applied to product and you know um, to, to your products based on how you go about product management. So. Um, Thank you both for you a know, really insightful session for me. These are uh, you know, topics that I haven't really ever discussed or heard people speaking about. So I've certainly learned a lot and I have no doubt um, anyone who's tuning into this has um, has also gained from it. So um, uh, Roger and Chris, I'm gonna include your um, links to your profiles so people can contact you with any please, further Please Please do. Yeah, um, sure. But um, yeah, no, thank, thank you both so much. This has been a really great session. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Great to hear. Uh, some great examples. You know, some <laughs> particularly enjoyed the uh, SQL source control story that you oh, mentioned okay. earlier on. That's uh, there. You go. Look at white that.
2: papers. Okay. White papers
0: can be brilliant. It turns out. <laughs> That's
2: it. Yeah. You know. Who a, knew? Who knew?
0: A phenomenal ex- uh, experience. Um, but yeah, thank you both once again. Um, Chris, thanks for making the introduction to Roger. You guys have been great. Um, Pleasure. And uh, yeah, I look forward to posting this. So um, thanks to everyone that's tuned in for this. And uh, until next time, signing out. Yeah. Cheers, folks. Thank you.